This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, I'm Nicole. And I'm Amanda. We wanted to tell you about Change Lab, a long-form interview podcast that explores the transformative power of creativity. Hosted by Lauren M. Buckman, the show is produced by Art Center College of Design, a global leader in art and design education. As Lauren discusses in his new book, Make to Know, and as his guests confirm, creativity is not a matter of instant enlightenment. Rather, it's a process of braving the unknown and route to knowing what it is that we're meant to make. This ninth season lineup includes interviews with author Amy Bender, visual artist Anne Hamilton, Whirlpool design chief Tisha Johnson, Lincoln Park performer and illustrator Mike Shinoda, and pioneering installation artist Diana Thader. Change Lab shines a spotlight on the little and big dramas that comprise the artistic life of people who can't help but make something where before there was nothing. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy Change Lab wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio podcast, we are so excited to be speaking with Sejong Cho, who is based in Baltimore, Maryland, and holds a PhD in environmental engineering and policy analysis from Johns Hopkins University. In addition to being a practicing artist, Sejong has exhibited at venues throughout Baltimore, Maryland, and given talks and lectured on both creativity and the sciences. Um, So we're really excited to hear more about your background and your story, how these things come together. Um, So Sejong, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to join the artists who have talked to you guys before and share my story. So, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about what I do. Um, I am a painter. I primarily paint in acrylic on canvas, uh, mainly because that's the only thing I learned. You know, I, I started painting really seriously about 80 years ago, about third year into my PhD, uh, mainly because I was a little bit frustrated with um, my my schooling. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm in school forever. And, you know, for scientists, it's really important to publish lots of papers. And, and at that point, I hadn't published anything. And I thought there was something wrong with me. So I needed to do something that, that I can just complete. So I had this canvas, this blank canvas uh, with nothing on because, you know, I, I wanted to do something, but I was afraid to do anything to it. And I carried the canvas to Chicago and brought it back <laughs> empty. Um, so, like, I looked at the canvas and I painted something. And it felt, you know, it felt really good to complete something. And I really never stopped painting since then. Yeah, but, but recently I've been painting in watercolor. And I really like how fluid watercolor is. But it's also rigid because if you make a mistake, you have to own up to it. Where acrylic, it's more mm-hmm. forgiving. You can always paint over so, yeah, that's what I do. I, I, I would like to one day try oil paint because I like the quality of color. So I'm always kind of thinking about what I'm going to do next. But 
eventually when I get a nice studio space. Because right now I'm just painting in our spare bedroom and I'm sure oil paint will sink up the <laughs> <Yeah>. place. <laughs> but I'm also a scientist, as you mentioned. Um, I have a PhD in environmental engineering and I, my work concerns sediment. You know, how when it rains or wind blows, soil erodes, and that sediment gets transported down um, with the river water or sometimes blown by the wind, and and that's how eventually forms our landscape. It's really kind of philosophical. Mm. Um, the specific field that I'm in is called fluvial geomorphology, which is a study of how landscape changes as a result of water. Um, so that's what I do. I look at landscape. I analyze data to understand where sediment is coming from, how it's transported, and where it's going, uh, mainly because uh, one of the main pollutants of our main water bodies is sediment. Um, and there's really um, little understanding of how, you know, where the sediment is coming from and how it's coming to pollute our waters. Um, but in order to manage water pollution, we have to have a good understanding. So I look at the landscape and try to understand where sediment is coming from um, at different time scale. Is it coming when it's raining hard or is it, you know, traveling over a long period of time? So I, I, I collect data and analyze to understand that so that we can use that as a foundation to make policy decisions so that we can protect our water resources. So those are the two main things that I do every day. Yeah, I'm really interested in these dual influences of art and science and where this originated for you. So I'm curious if you could go back and tell us about some of your earliest experiences or where each of these interests originated in your life. Uh, I thought about that um, and I think it goes back when I was, you know, to the beginning, I think the earliest memory I have is drawing something on a notepad. You know, my mom was a fortune teller when I was a kid. Oh, wow. So sometimes, you know, she had to go to this remote mountain area to bring gifts to the spirit who gave her the vision. <laughs> um, so I'll sometimes tag along. But, um, you know, I recently visited my mom last week and she reminded me of all this. Um, the spirit happened to be a little boy and was jealous of me and would, you know, I, I've gotten really sick once because I ate a chocolate before it was presented to the spirit. Um, I don't, you know, I kind of remember being sick, but that's, you know, that's how my mom reminds me how it happened. Anyway, so we'll go to this site and um, because I wasn't welcome to the spirits, I, I would often stay in the car and she will you know, leave the window open and I'll stay in the car. And, and she said that I could just entertain myself for hours just drawing on the pads with color pencil. So that's the earliest memory I have. So I, I knew from, from, from the early age I wanted to become a scientist, I mean, become an artist. And then I got into, you know, school, um, like my elementary school. I really liked reading science magazines. I loved dinosaurs. I loved the galaxy, the the ancient civilization. All these things were really fascinating to me, and I wanted to learn more. But of course, by like middle school, I didn't like science and math anymore because school in Korea is really scary. Teachers are like 
real bullies. They carry around sticks and hit students if they don't behave or score high enough in the test. It was terrible. Anyway, so they like kind of beat the, the, the curiosity and the interest in science out of me. So, you know, like if you told a middle school Taejong that I'll have a PhD one day in science and, 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 and I'll become a research scientist, I wouldn't have believed that. So it's really crazy that, that, that I am a full-time scientist now. But, you know, I moved to the United States around like when I was 16 or 17 and I didn't speak English. So the only thing I could do was math. So I like started like taking all the math classes and I was like really good at pre-calculus and calculus. But, you know, I, I didn't really, still didn't believe that I, I could become a scientist. So I, I um, entered college with an intention of being, a, being an artist. So when I first entered college, I was studio art major first year. But, you know, I didn't speak much English, so my SAT scores weren't really good. So I didn't really have a really good um, opportunity to go to four-year college in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I went to a community mm-hmm. college in Rockville, Maryland, called uh, Montgomery College. Mm-hmm. It's an excellent educational place. And, you know, it was cheap and... And, you know, they, they gave me lots of grants so that I have extra money to buy school supply. It was really excellent. Mm-hmm. So I had some first few years learning English and I took, um, um, painting one and painting one and drawing one and calculus and physics one. Like those, you know, I was kind of curious. I'm like, you know, I was pretty good in math in American high school, even though I, I sucked it, sucked it in, in, in Korea. Let me try this calculus you know, college-level calculus, and I really loved it. I loved that it wasn't just arithmetics anymore. With calculus, you know, it's an expression of how world works because calculus is all about rate of change, Mm -hmm. and life is about change. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I really clicked with calculus. So after first year, my um, advisor, who was my physics professor, asked me if I wanted to study engineering. And I was like, what is engineering? <laughs> and, and, and he explained to me what engineers do. And I'm like, oh, I think that sounds, that sounds good. I'll become a civil engineer. Maybe, you know, I could use my visual skills with civil engineering because, you know, they build infrastructure and buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, so I switched my major from studio art after first year of community college to civil engineering. And and then I just kind of stopped painting altogether. But I, I picked up some essential skills um, by take, taking painting one and two at Montgomery College um, on how pigment works, how to wash brush. I learned how to stretch canvas, those basic things. So that never went away, but I didn't paint for about a dozen years while I was pursuing my education in engineering, mm-hmm. first in civil engineering and undergrad, a master's in environmental science and PhD in environmental engineering. So that took like a dozen years of not painting until mm-hmm. I was too frustrated with my PhD that I had to paint something and I realized that that was missing in my life. So yeah, it's kind of been a long journey, but I'm, you know, I, I often wonder what if I never changed my major to civil engineering and just studied art? Then I would have that extra 12 years to have become much better than I am now because, you know, painting, any art, you, you need that dedication to become good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, first, first several years could be very frustrating because 
it's kind of like learning a language too. Like you want to express something, but you don't have the vocabulary and um, syntax to express it. But you know, as you spend more time, the range of expression that that you acquire become greater, and you become more free at expressing your inner creativity. So sometimes I wonder that, but I'm actually really glad that I went to science school and became a scientist and and having that training as an engineer and scientist informs both what topic matter I approach and how I approach painting. I paint like an engineer. I'm very methodical. My studio is really clean. I have colors organized by different hues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and my brushes in different cups based on their shape and size. It's like Everything is really well organized because that's that's just engineering. Mm-hmm. I have a spreadsheet of all the paintings that I created. I know how many paintings I make ever on average per month. Yes. You know, like so. <laughs> but but I think most important thing about you know being educated in scientific discipline is I have cultivated this um, sense of curiosity, right? Because Science, scientists need to be curious about how things work so that they're driven to explore how it works. So I, I, I really appreciate that. And also being observant. I think I have become more fascinated with just little things that I see every day. I think that's really important. So I, I think it's really important that, you know, people can have the privilege to see the world through those multiple lenses. That, that explains the world. That was a long answer. I don't know what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting to hear about your um, transition. And I'm curious about the, your entry back into art making after so much time apart. Did it feel like you were kind of returning to something or did it feel like you were learning a new language? I feel like I was returning to something because, you know, like I said, my earliest memory is drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always been kind of a visual person. And, you know, that that um, permeates through my scientific practice, too. I am very visual person. And science is very, you know, requires a lot of creativity. I developed landscape simulation models and how I put together landscape processes that's that's up to my imagination and creativity. So I now I don't see that. Okay, so when I first began painting, I thought what I'm going to do with painting and what I'm doing with science were two separate tracks. They run parallel. And when I first began painting, I was kind of hesitant to tell other scientists that I paint because I didn't want them to think that I am not fully focused in my scientific pursuits. Science, I mean... You know, you need full-time attention. The world is a complex place, and I'm in the business business of understanding how how the landscape works. Mm-hmm. But now I think that it's not parallel. It's it's actually really overlapped, and I I do believe that because I started painting, I was able to finish my PhD because I was struggling. You know, I I wasn't. I didn't publish any papers. The model that I was developing was kind of like I had to learn how to code um, when I began my PhD. So oh. everything was really new. Um, so it was frustrating. 
Um, but when I started painting, I realized that realized the, the 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 cumulative nature of any progress, right? Um, when I started painting, just looking at an empty canvas can be very daunting. Mm-hmm. And then and then you start putting paint on it, and you know sometimes the canvas rejects the paint a little bit. You have to keep working at it, and and in the beginning, the painting looks like shit. You just have to believe in yourself that you're going to turn that shit into gold. You know, there's yeah. some magical quality to it, kind of like alchemy. But, you know, it's, yeah, you just have to have faith that you have the capability to, you know, express what's in your heart and turn that ugly thing that was like paint in just random places and, and carve out what you are exactly envisioning or discover what you're envisioning in the process of painting. And that, that requires a lot of trust in yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, ha- having learned that, I realized that science is also cumulative. When you first write a paper, um, writing a paper, writing is difficult, you know. You, yeah. <laughs> but you just have to, like, you write, write it out all out and then you keep, chiseling at it, polish it until it resembles closest to what you mean. It's, you know, so that allowed me to finish my PhD with 300-page dissertation. I mean, it was a long dissertation because my PhD took seven years. It, it was a big project in, involving stakeholders in Midwest. Um, I, I worked with farmers to address water pollution that resulted from, you know, long-term landscape change in middle mid, midwest mm-hmm. um since the european settlement and landscape has transformed completely and um there are ramifications in terms of water quality so i you know that was a long project but i i think i was able to finish that because because i was painting um mm-hmm. but but still i thought that was it was a separate thing you know it even though like it Painting taught me an important lesson about the cumulative nature of progress. It was still a separate thing. And then last, a couple of years ago, after I finished my PhD, I started a postdoctoral fellowship at University of Maryland called, um, it's a research center that's called National Social Environmental Synthesis Center. And so fancy name, we, we call it, call that itself SUSINC, um, the acronym. So SUSINC was a research center to bring together multidisciplinary scientists, not just ecologists, hydrologists, but social scientists as well, mm-hmm. um, to foster multidisciplinary research to address complex environmental problems because environmental problems like water pollution, drought, uh, land pollution, air pollution, all of those things are essentially social problems. People are affected, mm-hmm. and we have to think about multiple dimension, mu- multiple social dimensions to address this, those problems, not just environmental quality, but economics, culture, sociology, all those things will, will have to come together to find the solution that could be actually applied to address those problems. So, so it was a really excellent um, place mm-hmm. because, you know, throughout my PhD, I was doing research that was slightly different from other people because I was tapping into multiple disciplines in order to work with stakeholders and, and address water pollution, which is social problem, economic problem, all that kind of stuff. So when I got to Sussink, I, I felt like I was home there too. And then we were invited, the postdoctoral researchers were invited to put together a proposal to hold our own workshop, to Sussink hold those 
multidisciplinary workshops, and it costs money. So we put together a proposal with two other postdocs who are also painters, and we wanted to see if we can carve out an academic field in the intersection of art and science. And we weren't sure what we were doing, but you know, by working at that proposal, we got rejected a few times. Um, but you know, I got really good at being rejected at this point. Um, so we got rejected, and then we got the feedback and worked on it again. And we submitted it about two times until we got uh, funded by National Science Foundation to bring together um, artists, uh, sociologists, psychologists, um, and, and environmental engineers like me to think about how environmentally themed public art will affect, uh, will affect community members, individuals, in such a way that we change our behavior that will manifest itself on, on quantifiable environmental outcomes like water consumption data or energy consumption data or urban farming. You know, those things are quantifiable. So we want to kind of find the, the link between environmental public art to those environmental, quantifiable environmental outcomes. So there was a workshop and, and we, we brought in, uh, this, amazing mural artist uh, in Portland, Oregon called, uh, his name was Roger Pete. He like paints bats and where other like uh, ecological themed arts around where he lives. And, and we wanted to hear his perspective on working on environmental arts, but we also brought in behavioral psychologists from Stanford and she shared her insights on how human mind works because those things are really hard to uh, detect. Mm -hmm. So that workshop really changed how I think about where I stand in the world. Mm. I, I realize that I, I don't necessarily have to have these two personalities. Yeah. You know, turn on my artist personality or scientist personality. It's all me. It's just me. Um, and so, you know, holding that workshop made me realize that, you know, there, there's a, a place, an important place for me. And, and I, you know, there's a way I can make a contribution to the world by tapping into what I'm good at, which are both art and science. And as a result of the, the workshop, we came up with this conceptual framework that links multiple social and cultural factors to environmental public art to quantifiable environmental outcomes. And now I'm, I've been working on this paper for two years. Um, we're, we're, we're hoping to publish it at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. um, and I spend a lot of time just reading about art history, sociology, just trying to broaden my perspective in this field because I think, you know, as a result of holding this workshop and learning from those scholars, I realized that, you know, we need to form an effective and strong coalition between artists and scientists to solve some of the, some of the, the most pressing problems in the world, both environmental and social. I recently read a quote by Tony Barbara. I don't know how to say her name. She's a, a, a civil rights activist. She said that role of the artist is to make revolution irresistible um, or, or sexy. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think scientists don't know how to make a topic sexy. <laughs> um, I think, you know, in order to get at people's minds because we have to open people's minds in order to address some of the pressing environmental problems about, you know, climate change, water pollution. You know, there has to be changes both at individual level, community level, social and national and global level. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to achieve that, I think scientists and artists have 
to form a coalition so that scientists can provide practical um, wisdom for how to address address problems with fact, you know, factual information, where artists can reach the um, emotional core of people, then you know maybe that will increase their willingness to listen and and imagine what what the other perspective is like. Because artists are really good at imagination, and I think you know we can cultivate that that ability to imagine. Yeah. I don't know. I just talked for a long time. <laughs> no, I love, I mean, I love everything that you said. And I, I feel like I want to break it all down. Recognizing the intersections within yourself of artists and scientists and how they don't have to play these opposing roles, but they can really inform one another and, and strengthen each, each side and allow you to kind of expand and grow in both fields and offer a deeper perspective to both fields because of your background in both. And I feel like so often we as humans feel the need to like carve ourselves into these very specific sections of our identities. And like the more we can recognize that like we're whole humans, we have these whole complex perspectives and interests. And if we can bring all of those to whatever fields we're in, it can really gain a lot. And the more we can, I don't know, the more we can listen to various forms of expertise. And I mean, also just what you had mentioned about creativity within science and within art. And like, again, we often think of these as like opposing fields when there really is so much overlap within the two. Yeah, Nicole, I don't know if you had more. I'm just like, oh, everything you're saying is so brilliant. And I'm so moved and excited. (laughs) Yeah, I'm always grappling with that idea, too. You know, how do I capture all this? Mm -hmm. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I just love how you seem to have really embraced both of these identities. And something that also stood out to me, um, you said kind of early on about how when you had first started painting, you were a little nervous to share this with your scientific community because for fear that it would detract from the work that you were doing. And I feel like this idea comes up a lot in the context of talking with artists who hold other day jobs. And whether it's uh, about the amount of time you're able to dedicate to your studio practice. Um, And I just think that's a sort of narrow way of looking at, um, again, all of the different responsibilities uh, or interests that we might have as people. Um, Not only because a lot of artists, you know, need to hold some type of day job just to make a living, but because those experiences can inform one another and I feel like you are such a perfect example of that of how you know it's not taking one isn't taking away from the other but you've been able to blend them together in a way that you know the sum is greater than uh, or the whole is greater than the the sum of its parts and um, been able to blend the two yeah I think I came to that real realization as my you know, as I learned more and my mind broadened and also, you know, realizing that science, yeah, science is definitely in the business of creativity. You have to be creative in order to be a a successful scientist. And art is a way to kind of foster that ability to express yourself creatively. But, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what kind of scientist I, I, I want to be 
so I've been reading a lot of books about how science works. And one of the books that I read recently that, that, that really inspired me, and I actually gave a copy to my niece-in-law who's starting college this year, and she's going to study environmental science. It's a book called Why Trust Science by Naomi Oreskes. Or Naomi Oreskes, you know, she's been writing about science. Uh, she also wrote a book called Margins of Doubt, um, which is really, it's a sad book about how tobacco industry and fossil fuel industry has weaponized the inherent uncertainty in science to raise doubts about the impacts of cigarette smoking and, 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 and the climate, uh, global climate change. But anyway, Naomi Oreski wrote this book called White Trust Science in 2016, um, because the timing, mm-hmm. the timing is important. Anyway, um, <laughs> she wrote a book, White Trust Science, and it, it, it describes how science in 20th century evolved. And she, she, uh, uses a lot of, uh, some of the, um, work done by feminist scientists in the 70s and 60s and talk about the importance of inclusion and diversity in science in order to make science more robust. Mm-hmm. Because if you are in a room consisting of homogenous, you know, scientists, they will only look at the world in a certain perspective. But like I said, environmental problems are complex. It's got multiple you know, faucets to those problems. So in order to address those problems effectively, we need people with different perspectives and have different experiences with, with those problems in order to come up with a solution that will serve the greater good. So I realized that, you know, by being, being <laughs> sorry, buying a, but It's okay. We love, we love a surprise <laughs> dog guest. <laughs> she is agreeing with me. Um, <laughs> Yeah, what was I saying? Um, oh, yeah, so, you know, I, I, I feel like, you know, because I'm a painter, I bring additional perspective to science. It, 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 I realize that it could only benefit what I'm trying to do um, by trying to broaden how I, you know, how I exist and how I express myself through art and science both alike. Yeah, I feel like what you're talking about has um, feels especially relevant today. And, you know, we're recording this near the end of 2021, but it just feels like we're living through this time of uh, misinformation swirling. And there's so many different perspectives around even the validity of scientific facts. And it's really interesting to think about that in relation to what you're saying about also allowing kind of a space and open-endedness for new discoveries. And so science is this field that kind of holds space for both of those things in the way that art does. You know, there is a truth and a fact that's kind of at the core of it, um, but also allowing this kind of an open-endedness for new discoveries to be made and I don't know. I'm curious if you have um, I just I guess how you're thinking about these things in relation to what we've been living through these last few years. <laughs> well, you know, I think art is really fundamental to human beings. You know, one of the, one of the first things that we discover in cave walls are, you know, paintings of animals they drawn with ochre. 
But science is also very fundamental to humans. You know, we've been observing the world and trying to make sense of it from the beginning. Yeah, I, I think um, the line between science and art is really blurry to me, and I, I like it that way. And and to answer your question about the uncertainties in the past few, few, dec- a few uh, years and the news we see about misinformation, pseudoscience, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's been around for a long time. <laughs> People have been saying pseudoscience, uh, fake news. I mean, these are just new term terminologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think about that a lot, and that's why I read that book, Why Trust Science. I wanted to know why someone was compelled to even write that book. Why couldn't we trust science? Why is that even a topic? Because scientists been, you know, it's built in the science, the business, you know, the practice of science is, it consists of peer reviews, uh, objective analysis, you know, the field was designed to exactly to avoid those like pseudoscience and misinformation kind of thing, but somehow that's, that hasn't worked. I mean, there are many theories and it's hard to get into all of mm-hmm. it, but why trust science talks a lot about that. But that's one of the reasons I wanted to write that paper that I'm working on, um, even though it's about environmental public art. I think the, the core message of that paper is the importance of harnessing the scientific ability to take in information and collect information from our environment to understand its processes coupled with artists' ability to kind of have a, a new and inventive expressions for what we observe. Having those two things will be an effective way to kind of, you know, open up people's minds so that they're, they're not guarding, you know, shielding themselves with the pseudoscience fake news doors so that they don't really venture out to see what, what the world is like from the other perspective. So, yeah. So, I, you know, I think that will be my next big thing. Now that I have come to a realization that art and science are not separate things for me, it is, it is those two, in the intersection of those two fields, that, that I will find a way to make my contribution in the world. Um, and I know that by pursuing those two I'll become better science than I'll be if I'm just trying to pursue a you know very specific field of sediment transport. I mean, sediment transport is fascinating, and I can talk about this for hours. <laughs> um, but but you know, I'm interested in how you know we live only one life, and I want to do things that that enriches my being here, and also that I I make contribution because you know in, individuals. We're nothing. Mm-hmm. We, we are here because in the context of our, of, of our society. So, yeah, I, you, know, I, you know, I used to quote uh, Muhammad Ali on this when I talk about this topic, you know, how he's, he said something like um, he was asked because he did a lot of charitable work and he, he was asked why he does all this. And he's like, well, you know, doing good and being nice to other people is a rent I pay to exist in this world. And I think the rent I'll pay is, in some way, minimize soil sediment pollution in the water. <laughs> That's one contribution, but also keep pursuing this intersection of art and science and see if I can bridge those two are- arenas, because they're amazing artists and they're amazing scientists. If we put our heads together, you know, that will 
be, you know, even more diverse science, right? So, so I think I see myself like next decade or so trying to really, you know, dig my hill in this, in, in this intersection of science, science and art that I found and see where that goes. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a fortune teller, so I don't know where I'll be in 10 years. Um, but, but that's we'll have how to consult I see, your mom. see how I, <laughs> I, I, she quit, oh. you know, because that boy spirit was just such a mean spirit. <laughs> Damn it. I had questions. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm really interested in how this initiative has been kind of driven by the scientific community you've been a part of, because I think we also talk a lot with artists about the ways that the kind of skill sets that we've developed in the studio can be applied to other fields. And so I feel like this idea comes up a lot in theory. It's like artists are creative problem solvers. You know, we have this ability to navigate the unknown, to make unexpected connections between things. And so what does it look like for artists to have a seat at the table um, in these conversations around addressing some of these really urgent social issues or environmental issues? And so I feel like you are so immersed in that and embedded in that world. And I'm wondering, too, I know that you are based in Baltimore and you've been working with Johns Hopkins um, and something that was um, sort of just starting out, I think, when we graduated from MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art, which is a kind of neighboring school, um, art school in Baltimore, uh, was this collaboration between Hopkins and MICA. Um, I'm not sure if it's still happening, but they were doing some joint classes, or it may have even been a joint degree program at the graduate level. Um, And so I'm curious what other ways you've seen, or maybe you've been a part of um, some of these collaborative efforts. Um, I'd love to hear more about either the workshops you've been putting on or just, um, again, what kind of ways that you've been creating space for all of these disciplines to come together. Yeah, um, so which where to start? Um, you know, it's, I'm, not, I'm not interested in like creating sci art, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, that's, that's not what's interesting to me. In a way, art can be a tool to tell a story impassionate story that science just doesn't have the ability to do so. So I'll give you an example that that I'm I'm currently working with with uh, a local artist. Baltimore is full of artists. So there's a lot of different people to work with. Um, mm-hmm. So my friend John, Jonah uh, McCone, she's a photographer and cinematographer. She and I started working together because she's been photographing places with kind of colonial legacy in this in this region like mm-hmm. old tobacco plantation and how that that landscape looks now what is the legacy of that history looks like now and you know these are beautiful photographs and if if it's an explained you wouldn't know what it is but it, it's just kind of it, it appeals to your eyes and 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 maybe it kind of I was just reading um, a, a New Yorker just before I came here. There's a Kandinsky show in New York, and Kandinsky was very spiritual, and he said something like, art is a, a hand to which to vibrate one's soul. <laughs> so, you know, those photographs of plantation farms are beautiful, and, and maybe it, it reverberates in your inner self, and maybe then you get curious about what it is and you read up on it. And I'm interested in those sites because 
the streams in East Coast Mid-Atlantic looks the way it does as a result of um, plantation farming starting two, three hundred years ago with European settlement. They have put in mill dams um, to harness the power of water to, you know, to break down grains or whatever. Um, old technology, but, you know, it, it seems like a long you know, history that happened 300 years ago. You don't even see those mill dams anymore. But there are legacies of those mill dams in a way. You, when you go to streams in Baltimore area or any, like, uh, mid-Atlantic area, you see very tall stream banks with no vegetation because mills kind of, you know, it mill dams the, the river and the sediment gets accumulated behind the dam and, in, you know, increases, accumulates sediment on set, uh, stream banks and makes the stream banks tall. Mm -hmm. So that's what we call legacy sediment, um, kind of a poetic, poetic word for describing what happened. Um, but I discovered that Jonah was making, uh, documenting those sites. So we started talking. And right now we're putting together a proposal to see how we can work together. And I, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm used to collaborating with different people, so I don't want to – I have certain ideas, but I want to, you know, make – co-produce the idea. So we started working together on this proposal and see, like, how we can collaborate. Um, and we came up with this idea of kind of us acting as curators to put together shows that has themes of environment, environmental uh, destruction or degradation um, and 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 – put together the shows to raise money to uh, support urban farming. So we're putting together a proposal to kind of make this thing happen because, you know, these things are not cheap to do. So mm -hmm. we're, we applied once and we got rejected, but we're going to apply again. Because like I said, I'm really good at um, not rejected by those rejections. <laughs> <laughs> Always try again. Oh, yes. Uh, but yeah, we have a working proposal to kind of, you know, the proposal is really an, uh, an, an excuse to have that dialogue among artists. We want to put together a show that will bring other artists, local community. And, you know, I have scientist friends and I can invite them. And when I have a show to kind of create an environment for dialogue, I think that's what I'm interested in, not necessarily making art that has scientific themes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I'm interested in. Um, Another example, uh, this is a future show I'm trying to organize. I don't know when it's going to be or where. <laughs> um, so I have a series of paintings that depict places where people extract natural resources like water, like by damming big rivers, uh, converting landscape to agriculture, a potash uh, reservoirs where you harvest potassium, algae, a reservoir to harvest like this algae species with keratin and that's basis of uh, pigment. Mm -hmm. And those are paintings based on aerial images. And I work with aerial imagery in my analysis and I've often thought how beautiful those images are. And mm -hmm. I decided to kind of like make a painting of it. And then I, I chose those sites where humans extract natural resources and, and how landscape can, can be completely transformed by those events. And sometimes in an eerily beautiful way. Um, so I have those show, those paintings, and I'm also working with a sound engineer 
um, a, a, a friend of mine, Zach Poff, uh, at Cooper Union. He co- he came. He's from here, and he came down to Baltimore to record the sound of cicadas. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I have this idea of building um, kind of a sound booth where people can go in, and the sound booth um, employs some elements of my painting. So it looks like you know elements of my painting came in in life in three dimensional world. Mm-hmm. So people can go in the sound booth and hear the ascension of cicada. Um, and, and, you know, I want to kind of have that show again to create an environment for dialogue because these are sites of natural resource extraction. And I want to kind of have this show in Washington, D.C. because they're policymakers. And maybe, mm-hmm. you know, in my small way, we could start a conversation about this global impact that humans have and humans are so small compared to the to the earth but the impact we're having is visible it's documentable you know it, it's it's out there so so that's another you know way I, I'm thinking how I'm going to harness the the pack in the intersection of art and science oh, I love that with the parallel of the cicadas and thinking about this summer how like one cicada not a huge impact but a bunch of them you're like wow this is unbelievably loud like mm-hmm. louder than a concert <laughs> it is amazing i mean so i was here 17 years ago it was even louder oh. but we have since then paved a lot of surfaces and a lot of cicadas couldn't emerge mm-hmm. so that's another impact of human intervention in our landscape so mm-hmm. again these are things that i could talk about <laughs> no yeah I, I love it i mean i feel like i could every aspect of the conversation I'm like oh my god we could dig so deep into that and just thinking about all the different connections of science and art in my life and and on all of our lives yeah I'm really interested in hearing a little bit about um, some of the relationships or logistics that have come together to bring some of these ideas to fruition as someone who moves really fluidly between these different disciplines. How have you been able to cultivate those? I mean, you've alluded a little bit to the challenge of finding funding or support for some ideas, and it seems like there have been some venues or avenues uh, for these things to come together, whether through an exhibition or through a workshop. Um, But I'm curious, are you kind of developing these relationships organically with people or are you starting with an idea and then sourcing, you know, experts from different disciplines? Um, Just what does it look like, you know, on the relationship end um, and then just logistically to sort of find support for some of these multidisciplinary ideas? Yeah, I mean, you know, both science and art you know, we're always looking for funding. <laughs> That's another commonality uh, yeah. between arts and science. <laughs> funding, got to write proposals. Um, and I, I find that there are increasingly more opportunities in art and science. Um, not many, but there are more now, I think. Um, in terms of relations... So you're applying for grants that sort of fit both criteria? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the proposal that I was working with Jonah, it was... It was specifically for art and science collaboration. They wanted to see five artists and five scientists. So, you know, I think that this is not new. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it goes back to, like, way back. Like, I, I read um, 
the biography of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and he identified himself as an engineer first mm, and mm-hmm. artist painter last. He prided himself as a, a river hydraulic engineer and also, you know, a uh, war engineer. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, in terms of relationship, I mean, so I've been in Baltimore for over a decade, and like I already alluded to, you know, how amazing the city is with human resources. They're really great artists, and I've many of them I've known before I started painting. So they know me as a scientist first, and they're like, oh, you paint too? Um, so, you know, I, I kind of find a collaboration opportunities from what I know of them. It, it's hard to, you know, yeah, things just come up organically because, you know, it's it's a side hustle for me to do this. So, you know, I'm not always, like, focused on finding funding to do it. But if I have a cool opportunity, yeah, sure. But um, so I was going to mention, like, the MICA and Johns Hopkins educational collaboration thing. I'm not sure, but I think that's a really cool idea because, artists can benefit from some scientific training because like I said, science teaches you how to look at the world, what, you know, how to be curious. And then, you know, science, scientists and engineering students can benefit from learning some creative fields, you know, from, from other humanities. I think it's really important to learn like social theory and ethics for scientists, as well as some basic, uh, you know, visual techniques too. That would be really useful. Yeah, I, sometimes I think um, maybe I can teach somewhere in between, but I haven't really like delved into it. I, I did get um, invited to teach a class at UMBC next month, and I'm going to talk about my career path and and do some workshop with the like first second year undergrad students because at that point when I was at that point I wasn't sure what I was doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it would be important for them to hear the journey I took and, 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 and to know that you don't necessarily have to make compromise. You can have it all and eat it all. Yes. <laughs> have, have the cake and eat, eat it too. Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> well, I think there's such a strong message in here about just following your curiosities and really embracing all of your interests. And I do think there we often face these pressures, whether it's societal or from family or expectations of people around us to uh, sort of pick a path or to, you know, pursue something that, that maybe is a little bit easier to explain or understand and to fit ourselves into these categories. So I love that you've been able to find a way uh, to create your own path and to merge these disciplines together. And so I think that's um, just a great message for any uh, young artist, but really anyone at any stage who's felt like they've kind of straddled these different worlds. Because I feel like we've all been in that position in, in some way. Um, but the way that you've been able to really weave them together into this really cohesive um, career and I'm sure that's taken time. This is the product of many years of working and building relationships and connections um, in order to kind of create that fusion. But just that it is possible, and you can really create space for yourself and you know all of the things that you want to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that remind me what I was going to say earlier. To add to 
message to um, younger artists is that I initially chose civil engineering as my major in undergrad because that was a practical thing to do. You know, like I could get a job being an engineer. I'm not sure about art, but I know I can get a job as an engineer. So I kind of made a compromise then and I didn't paint for 12 years and I feel like I wasn't as happy during those years. I mean, there's other, you know, personal things in my life that made me unhappy. Societal things too, like being being a 20 year old is wasn't really hard. It was really difficult um, because yes. because of how <laughs> the society expects you to be. Yeah. Um, and then you know, I I think um, as I learned more, I, I could kind of share that preoccupation of how I'm, uh, how I'm perceived by others. So I'm a little bit. I mean, I still care, but you know, less now. Um, and and mm-hmm. kind of be like, I'm just gonna be me. I'm gonna pursue those things. I mean, that takes time. Um, yeah. yeah. And and another reason I didn't paint paint for that uh, for those twelve years was because I was kind of pre you know preoccupied by how it will be perceived by other people. You know. Am I going to create an, a work that's going to make impact in the world? You know, am I going to make mm-hmm. a painting that's ne- you know that's never been seen before? Um, those things kind of prevented me from painting on that empty canvas for m- many years. And then I started painting because I needed it. I needed some outlet to finish something because I was frustrated with my PhD. So I painted for myself basically, and and that's why it stuck because it gave me p- pleasure of. You know, it gives me pleasure to turn those shit into gold. <laughs> so I was like, I was just like really into it. I was like, I'm making painting for myself. I don't care if I have a show, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my preoccupation of like having, you know, making name for myself by painting. I was just painting because it made me feel good. It made me, it taught me important lessons about, you know, incremental nature of progress. It, it taught me to trust myself because, you know, if you don't trust yourself that you can carry out this painting, you're never going to do it. So I learned important things. So and I, I think it's because I focus on the internal process of painting um, rather than thinking, you know, thinking about external approval. So, yeah, that's another thing I want to really say because I feel like this 12 years I'll never get back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no painting. Uh, I appreciate you saying that because I think that, especially when we're when we have a lot of interests, when when we contain multitudes and we want to do all the things, and you're in a place where you're kind of forced to think like, what is the most practical thing to do, or what's the most responsible thing to do, or I have to decide and stick to that decision. And I think it's very. I don't know, when you're forced to to make that decision or when you're in that place, it can feel like, okay, I guess this is forever. But our lives can take these extremely windy, complex routes where you can completely circle back to something that you thought maybe you'd never go back to. And I know, I mean, 
it's not a, exactly a parallel, but I know when I started school, I was like, I'm going to be an illustrator. And then I was like, no, I'm going to be a photographer. And I was like, no, I'm going to be a fiber artist. And now I'm like, oh, look, I'm illustrating again about a decade later after it, abandoning it for a long time. And now I'm like, man, if only I had been illustrating all that time, maybe I'd be a be better illustrator. But then at the same time, I'm like, but allowing myself to explore those other interests inform my practice in other ways that I could never gain by having, you know, maybe just gone on one path. And it's, I don't know, maybe some of that comes with like perspective and age, like in time, you're like, oh, yeah, I can do different things. And like, it's okay for my life to have these phases and to to have these overlaps. And, and I don't know. <laughs> that's not a complete thought. But <laughs> actually, there's, yeah, no, no, actually, that's actually, um, a foundation for a paper I read recently mm -hmm. in science. Um, oh. So this a psychologist from Northwestern mm -hmm. University studied what's called creative hot streak. You know, like, um, for example, creative hot streak, the example they use is when Van Gogh painted in this particular style that he did that everybody loves with the sunflowers and all that kind of stuff. Or, or Jackson Pollock's um, a paint drip method. And, you know, when he discovered that method, he had this hot streak of making those paintings. And they used the metric of success is kind of, you know, how many paintings they sold. I mean, metric of success is subjective. But mm -hmm. anyway, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, but um, the, that paper explains that, that they not only studied um, artists, painters like Jackson Pollock and, and Van Gogh, but filmmakers and scientists. For scientists, the metric of success was how many papers they were cited by other scientists. Uh, film directors, how many movies made in the opening week or whatever. And what they did was they followed those artists, like thousands of artists' career, and discovered that before those um, scientists and artists and movie makers reached the hot streak, creative hot streak, they had this period of exploration and you know mm. it could take it could be years or months but there has to be some period of exploration of illustration tape, paper making photography what have you mm -hmm. and then you find something that clicks with you and then you get into the exploitation mode so they call this model explore, exploration exploitation <laughs> um, in order to reach the hot streak scientists mm. um, but anyway, so what you were saying is exactly that. And I think, you know, I, I lament about those, you know, many years of not painting, but I was in, in reality exploring uh, my abilities mm -hmm. uh, by learning uh, science and engineering topics and lear learning scientific ways. And then, you know, that has resulted in the paintings that I make. They're very precise. And my paintings are, I, people describe it as surrealistic. Um, I think it's just, I paint the way it makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe it's because, you know, there's only so much I can do. It looks surreal, but it looks okay, I guess. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's whatever you do is valuable because you're always learning, right? I, I don't think there's anything as such thing as a um, waste of time. You're always, if you're conscious, and, and taking in all the information that's coming at you and making the best of it. I think that's, you know, you're exploring. So mm -hmm. keep exploring. 
Yes. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I feel like um, something that's coming up for me too is just the length of that arc of your life or career that there can be many years spent in any one of these states. And I think something that we're always interested in is really like honing in on what what those periods are like, especially when you feel like you're not receiving the recognition or I don't know, just like what the level of self-awareness is, whether you feel like you're in a quote unquote hot streak or not. Like are, I think even for artists that are um, like Jackson Pollock, for example, when he was making these paintings that would sort of, what he would become known for, I think there was a lot of vulnerability there. Like the work was not initially received very well. There was a lot of skepticism. And so I just think of, you know, how many artists who, Maybe they are in that period and they don't even realize it. You know, they're producing the work that's going to become really significant to them or others later. Um, Or they're in that period of exploration. And I think being able to see or just I guess it goes back to what you were saying earlier, this having this level of faith and trust in yourself and the process that. Um, you know, if things aren't really working for you in the studio or, you know, you feel like you're hitting these roadblocks, it's it's not it doesn't indicate, you know, failure or um, but really is just a part of the process and is actually really critical for the maybe the work that you'll eventually be making. And so I just think there's so much there I'm, I'm really um, interested in because that's something that tends to come up in conversations too, like what. What were those periods like for you when you weren't finding opportunity or when you felt like you were struggling and sort of how did you get through that? So just hearing you kind of put that into context is, um, I don't know, it really resonates. Yeah, and part of the trick is how you work, you know, like everybody works differently. Everybody's mind works differently. Um, it's certainly true that you're in a hot streak and you don't, you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, I think... Yeah, part of this is really learning who I am, right? I'm studying science and art. It, these are all the things that allows me to understand in a deeper level who I am. You know, I've lived with me for, you know, 40-some years, and I'm still figuring out who I am, and partly because we are changing. We're always changing, and, and you have certain agency in who you're becoming, uh, and this, this, again, it's very cumulative of who you were. Yeah, I, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think it's part of this understanding how I process information, how I deal with different pressures and limitations. Uh, I think um, that's all, all showing up in, in the works that you're creating, whatever it is, whether it's science or art. Actually, um, there's a really good by um, Kurt Vonnegut called Bluebeard. It's about abstract expressionism, speaking mm-hmm. of Jackson Pollock. Mm. Um, the main character of Bluebeard is this amazing painter who can paint anything that he sees. And then, you know, the realism died and everyone's doing express, abstract expressionism. So he wanted to study that and went to a master and painted something. And that teacher's like, I, I can't teach you because you already know how to paint, uh, you know, perfectly, perfectly, you know, and and that something that he said afterwards is something that really resonated with me. And, and it's it's something like, you know, what makes art interesting is the struggle that artists go through to create something. But if you already know how to paint everything and there's no struggle, then th- th- it's just not as interesting. So 
you know, that that's like, okay, so if, if you're in a hot streak, if you know how to do it, will, will the art be interesting? Do you have to go and explore or something else? But I think everybody has different journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and part of the trick is figuring out what the best journey it is for you, given who you are. And, and, but, you know, and, and to understand who you are is to really delve into multiple subject matters to see the world in multiple perspectives so you can gain the broadest understanding of our identity. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I feel like when we talk with a lot of artists... I, I said it, I was like... Yeah. I was just going to say, um, when we, we talk about the creative process uh, with a lot of artists, there's often this um, emphasis on growth and and the process itself being that path to fulfillment, um, you know, whether you're fully engaged with a piece or, you know, how it's teaching you something or encouraging you to grow. So I think it just seems like a theme of our conversation, whether it's connected to the work itself or just kind of forging our own life path is being able to create this space where there is a process of discovery and kind of detaching from the outcome and it just makes me think of both of these fields that you're involved in too. Both science and art are both rooted in inquiry. And so there is this process of questioning that's sort of inherent to both of those things. And I think that's something that we we often talk with artists about, but I know can be a real point of struggle, even for us personally, is just um, allowing that space for uncertainty in our own life. And so um, being able to kind of embrace that within whatever discipline we're working um, is really powerful. And so I just love the way that you talk about these things so fluently. It's like you've been able to mm-hmm. blend. I mean, hearing you speak about your work seems like such an example of your um, the, the career that you've had, being able to kind of make all these different connections. And um, so it's really been a joy to hear you talk about all of these things. Thank you. I think about that a lot, you know, when I'm painting, because, you know, you're, you're lost in thoughts while I'm painting. I'm like, what do I, why do I paint? Why do I have to do this? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's, ev- everything I mentioned today is kind of combination of all those quiet thoughts I had. I thought, you know, I had to practice for this podcast, and I'm like, I can't practice podcast. <laughs> I'm just going to have to just go and have a conversation with you and you know (laughs) yeah oh I love this is there anything that we haven't really um, gotten the chance to talk about that you would want to make sure to share Mm, I don't know we talked about so many different topics I mean I've really appreciated (laughs) everything that you've said about kind of the pursuit of the artistic practice as a part of processing introspection and kind of how they influence one another. And I know that like, probably many of us have been very introspective over the last couple years or longer, especially if we have a, you know, solo studio practice where you just spend a lot of time thinking and evaluating. And I really appreciate when I can hear other people's takeaways on what they're thinking about, um, especially when they're similar and relatable. And I'm like, okay, I, I don't feel like so alone on my little art island thinking about these little things when so many of us are having a lot of the same thoughts. And I've really appreciated your perspective on 
art and science. And I feel like I could hear about it for hours. <laughs> we have an incredible reference list from this episode, too, with all of the papers and books that you mentioned. So we'll definitely include all of those in our show notes. Yes. You know, with the pandemic, I think I'm reading more and I'm, I'm really happy because, you know, I, I get a lot of ideas from reading. Um, mm-hmm. because, yeah, because words are very powerful. Because um, yeah. it could really just kind of create a, a completely different world within your mind. So, yeah. Why, why did I say that? <laughs> um, no, I, I was actually thinking about the, the, one of the, the motivations for my work comes from text, you know, just reading things. Like I made a painting based on Italo Calvino's short story. I am making a series of paintings based on a, a artist profile I read on New Yorker of Pepe Lati Rist. I saw her video at Glenstone. Uh, have you been to Glenstone? What an amazing museum. It's in um, North Potomac. So, oh, okay. Amanda, you have to go. You have I got to gotta get go. Tickets and, yeah, it's a modern art museum, and they had a one room with Rist video of this woman walking down the street like joyfully with a giant flower and smashing car windows. Um, that's Rist work. And I saw that work first and then I read this profile and she described this video that she made in the 90s um, of a woman in the forest with a menstrual blood all over her body and how people were really appalled by this video. People were so disgusted by period blood. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I can take that on. So I'm actually making 12 paintings that chronicles my period in year 2020 when time was distorted, but my body clock oh. kept ticking on. So I, yeah. I'm making 12, 12 paintings, like depicting like period blood coming off of a plane with, um, with the, my kind of like landscape with, with landscape that speaks to me as a scientist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, so yeah, reading has been my thing recently. But I have a lot of reading uh, recommendations if you. <laughs> well, where else can people keep up with your work, um, both artistically and then any sort of workshops or um, papers that you're publishing? Well, um, I you know Instagram is the best place um, uh, to see the latest work that I'm creating. Um, I like it, even though it's owned by Meta. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I like how I can control the materials um, and and really rarely show to uh, my audience um, and get feedback. I like it. Um, And my handle is S-E-J-O-N-G-E-E, Sejong-E. I also have a website, sejong-e.com, and that's where I kind of have well photographed works profile there I think those are the places I can advertise upcoming shows and the papers I'm I'm the kind of person with unbridled enthusiasm so like if anything exciting happens I share it yes you gotta celebrate it (laughs) so um yeah those are two places that you can keep up with my work uh, and and I'm hoping to get this paper published because I think you know I I feel like my career is just beginning. I'm still exploring, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this paper is one of those papers that could 
broaden my audience and also carve out my place in the scientific world that that also recognizes my artist artistic pursuit. So so yeah. Other than that, you know, I'm giving a couple of presentations at American Geophysical Union in December about sediment transport and how landscape is connected by rainwater. <laughs> yeah. PowerPoint. I'll have PowerPoint talk for that. But you know, that's that's uh that's a, a scientific conference. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited. Um I you know, I think I'm gonna have pretty exciting next several years being an artist. And my career as a scientist is also really expanding. I mean, I, I am early career scientist, so I'm just beginning research that is design of my own. You know, PhD, I was guided by my advisor, but now I'm kind of like making up my own rules um, mm -hmm. and picking the, the people I want to work with, keeping in mind the importance of di diversity and inclusion. And I'm also like, doing workshops that that gives me more vocabulary to get at, get at that goal i'm actually doing a workshop you know ellen elda the actor he's he's a like a big science communication person he was in mash but anyway i i i got accepted in the workshop so i'm working with women scientists so the workshop is called advancing women women in stem leadership or something like that so we're learning how to communicate science effectively, but also support um, diversity in science, which is lacking. Science is still very male-dominated, mostly white male-dominated. So a lot of early career scientists like me, we look different, and we, you know, finally realizing that it's okay that we look different. Like when I was pursuing my undergrad, I was often the only woman and, and a person of color, Mm -hmm. um, I went to school in Midwest and uh, Northwestern, and I I, I felt like I, I didn't belong. And I you know struggles I had I felt like it's because I was different. So now you know I realize that that doesn't matter. <laughs> I could be a scientist no matter who I am. So you know that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you guys to to showcase that someone like me can have a successful scientific career and also pursue other dreams that we might have to share that story, I think could be important for emerging artists and scientists. So yeah, that's, that's why. So thank you so much for giving me this platform to talk about my life. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for sharing your story and your, your wisdom. I, I look forward to listening back to this episode because I know there, there are just so many thoughtful things that you've said, and I'm, I'm excited to think about them more and to share them with our audience. Amen. Thank you so much, Sejong. It's been so fun to talk with you. I know. I feel like we could just talk for hours. Yes. <laughs> yeah, let's keep it going. This podcast episode is just going <laughs> to... I know what you mean, though. I feel like um, whenever we have conversations uh, for the podcast, you just get so immersed in them, and it just feels like we could we could keep going forever. So, but we'll respect your time. Mm -hmm. We know that you have many things <laughs> yeah. to do. So, thanks for taking time out of your day. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's been really fun to take a little break from my daily work to talk about interesting things. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 